Hi, good morning. Let us treasure these words from Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16, the word of God. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who, he, he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ, from the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love, as each part does its work. The word of the Lord. I'm going to ask John to come on up. Um, so Cole asked me, my name's Grant, and I'm one of the elders here, and Cole asked me to introduce my friend John, who's going to be starting out for a few minutes and then hand over the, uh, the preaching to Cole. Um, just a word of encouragement for you this morning. God is good, and he loves you, and he loves you with his whole heart, and he pursues you like we're singing about. His goodness is running after us, right? He pursues us. You don't have to clean yourself up to come to him. We come to church today to be reminded of who God is, right? And in doing that, we understand his attributes and his character, then we're reminded of what he says is true about us. So we find our identity not based on what the world says and based on social media and based on what people say, but what is true, real truth. The word as we were worshiping this morning, I was just thinking, and I, I know every person can connect with this. There's a part when you're worshiping in your heart and you're like, man, I needed that. There's something, there's a rightness in it. As you proclaim truth about God, there's a part of your heart that says, yes, that's alive today. It's alive more today than it was a few days ago. I'm feeling this right now, Holy Spirit. And that's God communicating his love to you and speaking to your true heart, speaking to your true identity. And he's saying, I made you for one purpose, and that's to be satisfied only in what I have to offer. And you can't find it anywhere else other than what God offers us. John's going to be sharing a little bit this morning, but this is my friend John Reinhardt. And two things. One, 
John texted me about three or four days ago, and he says, hey, I'm in Arkansas. We're driving west. I'm like, hey, come on to Carlton Landing. We've talked about it for years. He's never been here. I met John in California years ago, and he's been all over God's green earth since then. It's not by accident that John's here today. John and Renee and Willow and Malachi pulled in this big RV that was parked right over here, and then we moved it because some neighbors were getting kind of anxious. <laughs> it's not by accident that John's here. God orchestrates our steps. It's also not by accident that you're here today. So every person that's here is here because God has a message of truth that he wants to speak into your life for a purpose, not just so we can be filled up more until we're just like saturated with truth and encouragement for our own well-being, but what the Bible says that all these promises that God says over us, they find their yes in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one that brings meaning and conclusion to all the promises of God. And then from that, we find our amen for the glory of Christ. Like we find what's true about God and what's true about me is not just for me, but it's for a purpose. John's going to show this morning, and he has a ministry called Gospel Patrons that says, one, this is what's true about God, and this is what is true about the church, but also here's how the church cannot just be convinced about who they are, but they can also go out and they can have a participating role in the kingdom. Okay, so I'll hand it over to John. Hey, thank you. Appreciate it. Morning, everyone. Good to see you. Thanks for welcoming a West Coaster to Oklahoma. Um, The very center of the Christian faith is is a single question, and we see it all the way back in the Garden of Eden. The very center of the Bible is a question, will you worship the creator or will you worship created things? The Bible doesn't ever ask, will you worship God or not? It's, will you worship God the creator or will you worship created things? It assumes that you and I are made to be worshipers. We have been wired by God to build our lives around something that's really, really valuable. We've been wired by God to give ourselves to something that's truly, truly Worthy, And my son and I got to go to our very first Georgia Bulldogs football game a couple weeks ago, and we saw 96,000 people build their lives around something. (laughs) We watched the entire town of Athens, Georgia, build their lives around something. And you're probably not a Bulldogs fan, but whatever your team is, you know what I'm talking about. Everybody's wearing the colors. They're wearing the uniform. They're like the whole town of Athens was red. There were tents set up so that people could watch games in the tents before the real game that happened and then watch the post game event after they watched the game happen. It, it felt like, like I, I, I just was wondering the whole time, like, I wish we were this excited about Jesus. <laughs> I wish we built our entire weekend around, like, the king deserves worship, and we get to gather to give him glory because that's what he made us to do. I wish we were that excited about Jesus because the central question is, what is truly worthy to you, and will you build your life around it? We will all build our lives around something. And most of the gravity of our world is going to pull you to build your life around something created, like football, or children, or your house, or your net worth, or your image, or your security, or your popularity. The gravity of the world will pull you to build your life around something that's created rather than the creator. 
That's the gravity. The question is, once we've decided, and I assume many of you have decided since you're here this morning, all right, I get it, the creator is what's truly worthy. I want to offer my life back to him. The question is, how do you do that? How do you do that if you're not a preacher, you're not a pastor, you don't work for a church, you're not a missionary, you don't do this 40, 50 hours a week, you come to church for 90 minutes on a Sunday, What does it look like for you to live your life to say God is truly worthy? God is what gets the center of my affections, my emotions. I'm going to fear God more than I fear anything else. I'm going to love God more than I love anything else. I'm going to seek God more than I seek anything else. This is the question. How do you do that if you're going to work or going to school or you're retired? the, the, the point of this passage, and I'm kind of like the hype man for Cole this morning. I get to sort of warm up the crowd before Cole gets to step on stage and crush it. But the, the, idea, the idea that we're going to get to in this passage is that God has a, an amazing purpose for your life. He's got an amazing purpose not just for some people's lives, but he's created you uniquely. He's made you a unique genius. He's put within you uh, gifts, talents, and a calling, and you're going to have to figure out how do I walk in light of that calling? How do I live out the calling that God has in my life? Whether it's being a mom and homeschooling, whether it's adoption, whether it's going to work, building a business, building an enterprise, building a company. Like, how do I offer my life back to God to say you're truly worthy rather than created things? This is a journey that I was on because I hit a midlife crisis at 25. I've been behind in many things in my life, but I was ahead on that one. I hit it at 25. I was ready to go. I'd worked in business. My wife and I both came from business families, watched our families succeed and do well. We got to college. We studied business. We graduated. We're working in business. And at 25, we'd paid off all of our student loans. I made 100 grand, and I was depressed. I knew how to succeed. We're living in Southern California right next to Newport Beach. And the goal in Newport Beach is to get a bigger and bigger house, live closer and closer to the beach, get a faster and faster car, and more and more plastic surgery for your wife. (laughs) That's the goal. That's the goal. And we're 25, student debt, paid off, know how to make money, know how to succeed. And we're like, what is this for? Is it that? Is that the goal? That's that's a terrible goal. That's not why God put me on planet Earth. He must have something more for me, but I didn't know what it was. So I went on a journey, left business, quit business. All my coworkers thought I was crazy because I had just been promoted four times that year. And I was like, but but something inside me is dying. I can't connect the dots to the purpose of why God's made me. So I left business, went to seminary. Because that's where you find real purpose, because you study the Bible. <laughs> that's, that's what I thought. Like these, I'm definitely going to find purpose here. And so I got a Master's of Divinity degree. I'm trained as a pastor, but I got a businessman's background and heart. And we were finishing up uh, seminary, and Renee had been my sugar mama supporting me through seminary. Thank you for that, by the way. And uh, when I was done, I said, hey, we've been chasing my dreams for the last four years. What's your dream? I had no idea that I was about to ask her a life-changing question that was going to send us on a journey that we didn't expect, but I just said, we've been chasing my dreams for the last four years. What's your dream? And out of her mouth rolled this dream that it was just like, like she didn't even think about it. It just came out. She said, I want to travel all the way around the world in a single shot to become a global Christian and to learn to walk by faith. I'm like, that's my girl. I married that girl. That was a great dream. Travel all the way around the world to become a global Christian and to learn to walk by faith. So I said, I'm in. We're 29 years old. We have no kids, no mortgage. Put all of our belongings in storage and traveled the world for 132 days. We never booked a hotel room ahead of time because we were going to pray, Lord, provide us our daily bread and our daily bed. 
lead us, make a way for us. And we, we got to see God work in incredible ways. And I'm not going to talk for hours on that this morning. But one of the things I was asking this whole time is, God, what, what's my part to play in your kingdom? Have you ever asked that? Has that ever been a prayer that's risen up in your heart? What's my part to play? What are the good things that you've created me to do? How do I offer my life back to say that you are truly worthy? This was the, the wrestling in my heart for four and a half months as we traveled around the world. I had business in one hand and this passion for God and ministry in the other, and I was pretty sure those things didn't go together. I was pretty sure they were very separate subjects. Until we ended up in Sydney, Australia, met a friend of a friend. He was a business guy who worked for a private equity company, very successful, very humble, gray suit, silver hair. We met him for coffee. We're in jeans and sweatshirts because we've been traveling the world for four months, and he takes us out to coffee. And I was supposed to ask him about an idea called Gospel Patrons. A mutual friend of ours who connected us said, I think you should ask him about Gospel Patrons. And just, I, I, got, I don't know what that is. He goes, don't worry, I think it'll connect with you. So midway into our cup of coffee, he said, uh, I said, what, what is Gospel Patrons? And he said, behind every great move of God in history, God always raises up someone who's going to preach his word. The preacher of the gospel, the proclaimer of the gospel. He, and we, we know those stories. We know their biographies of missionaries and pioneering preachers and people willing to go and do a hard thing for God. And he goes, but the, the closer we look into history, we find those people were never lone rangers. That behind them, God raised up not only a gospel preacher, but a gospel patron to stand with them. And that gospel patron was gifted very differently. They're often gifted in business and making money and being generous and strategy but when they partnered together with the person who was called to proclaim the gospel, God did explosive things. And I said, well, like what? And he shared a story with me. He said, and a very short story, but he said, 500 years ago, this book didn't exist. This is an English Bible. You have one of these. It might be on your phone or your iPad or you might have it on your shelf at home. But 500 years ago, the English Bible didn't exist. The, the Bible had been originally written, the New Testament in Greek and the Old Testament in Hebrew and a little bit of Aramaic. And in the 4th century, it had been translated into Latin. And across Europe, the Bible remained in Latin for 1,000 years. Think about that. 1,000 years is a long time. Four times as long as our country has been around. The Bible had been remained in Latin. problem is languages develop. And across Europe, the languages kept developing. And people weren't speaking Latin. They were speaking Italian or French or Portuguese or English or German. And yet everything they would know about God came through a Latin Bible or a Latin church service. And so it felt like church and the things of God were this separate sort of isolated truth for, you know, clergy and professors and academics, but not actually common people. And in the 1500s, God raised up a young man by the name of William Tyndale who came from a business family and had a passion. And he was a gifted linguist. He had been to Oxford he had a passion to translate the Bible for the first time into English. Only problem was Bible translation was illegal. <laughs> uh, at that time, the official church considered Latin an exalted heavenly language. We don't want to give this into the hands of the people because who knows what they're going to do with it. They might screw it up. And so we'll just, we'll just sort of keep it to ourselves. But along comes William Tyndale and says, that, that's not good enough. We need the scripture in our own language. So he seeks permission from a high-up church leader and says, hey, would you sponsor me to sort of sidestep this law and translate the scripture? And the guy says, no, I'm not going to do that. 
So for six months, William Tyndale's really bummed. He's a preacher, Oxford-trained linguist, wandering around London, taking a few odd preaching jobs, going, what do I do now? I have a burden to give my nation an English Bible, but not the means to do it. And he bumps into a businessman who history has almost completely forgotten, named Humphrey Monmouth. How about that for a name, Humphrey Monmouth? Humphrey Monmouth was a successful cloth merchant, and cloth in the 1500s in England was like technology is today. They were shipping cloth all over the European continent and into North Africa, and Humphrey Monmouth was very good at it. He comes alongside William Tyndale, and he said, Tyndale, I've heard God's given you a job to do. It's time you get to work. Come live at my house. I'll provide for you. I'll protect you. Get to work. Essentially, he's saying, I'll take the risk with you. I know this is illegal but I'll take the risk with you. So these two men lived under the same roof. Humphrey Monmouth was protecting William Tyndale for the next six months, feeding him, making sure he had what he needed, and for six months he's furiously translating the Greek New Testament into English for the very first time in history. When he's finished, Monmouth uses his ships where he's shipping his cloth to get William Tyndale over to the European continent where all the best printers were. Printing is still relatively new technology at this point. Within a year, 3,000 copies of the English New Testament roll off the presses in 1526. First 3,000 English New Testaments the world had ever seen. And it's a contraband book. There were little, there's three left in the world today. The British Library in London has one. It's worth a, they bought it for a million pounds. I tried to use my author credentials to get behind the thick glass to turn a page, and they said, no, we don't care. <laughs> but they took these little journal-like New Testaments, and they put it in a watertight box, and they would drop them in a barrel of oil or hide it in a barrel of wine, put them back on the merchant ships, and smuggle them back into England. And pretty soon, the Bible, the English Bible, is being sold in England on the black market. Under the bookstall, you know, I heard you got uh, the book of Ephesians. Maybe. Three shillings and two pence says you do. Okay, here you go. <laughs> and what happened was, for the first time in England, people got the scripture in their own language, and their hearts began to explode for the things of God. Did you know? Have you heard what he said? Do you know John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God doesn't ask us to give to him. He gives way more to us, even his one and only son. Did you know what he says about us? You are the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. Did you know that he's got a future and a hope for us and a plan for us that all things are going to work together for good for those who love him? It says that in here. And we can read it in here, finally, in our own language. William Tyndale remained in exile from England the rest of his life. He died at 41 because a Judas-type figure entered his life betrayed his trust. He was a wanted, William Tyndale was a wanted man hunted by his own king for translating the scriptures and breaking the law. His patron, Humphrey Monmouth, was imprisoned in the Tower of London for a year. If you've ever been to London, you've probably seen the tower. It's where they keep the crown jewels. He was in, it used to be a prison, and Humphrey Monmouth, the businessman, was imprisoned for a year for funding and supporting William Tyndale's translation of the English New Testament. The businessman was released. William Tyndale wasn't. He was carried off to a Vilvoord prison for 450 days, sitting alone in isolation in the dark. And after those 450 days, he was marched out in front of a crowd, backed up against a post. Brushwood was packed around his legs while the crowd stood and watched. 
And in his last words, right before the commissary gave the nod to the executioner, William Tyndale cried, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. He strangled him, burned his body at the age of 41. I'm 42. He lived a year less than me. But what he and his gospel patron, Humphrey Monmouth, launched into the world was nothing less than the English Reformation. The people, there were book burning parties trying to stamp out the scriptures. Didn't work. People had gained an appetite for God's word in their own language and they said, I have to have it. And so despite all of the efforts to stop it, the hunger grew. And revisions came out and people began to finish the Old Testament where Tyndale left off. In that day, the English Bible reached six million English speakers. Today, there's over 600 million English speakers who have a Bible because one guy said, I'm going to translate it, and another guy said, I'm going to fund it. It was mind-blowing to me that day in Sydney, Australia, as a 29-year-old to think that there was a business guy who gave financially and even went to prison because he believed that people should have God's word. People who speak my language should have God's word. We tend to forget that behind great movements of God, it's not just the person on the stage with the microphone working for the missions organization or the church, but you and I have a part to play. And what we do with the wealth that God has given us is not incidental to our faith. It cuts to the very heart of our faith. Jesus says where your treasure is, your heart will be also. He never said where your marriage is, your heart will be also. Where your kids are, your heart will be also. Only one thing did he say, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If we can use the treasure that God has given us and deploy people into this world who are going to preach the gospel, translate the scripture, bring the word of God to the ends of the earth, we have a chance like Humphrey Monmouth to say we are actually playing our part. We're not second-class Christians, second-class citizens because you don't work for a church or you're not a missionary. You can use your business, your skills, your finances that God has entrusted to you and say, God, you are, you're better than this. <laughs> Jesus, you are better than this. Being a part of what you're doing in the world is better than this. And it looks kind of crazy in a world that says money matters the most. It looks kind of crazy to not be an SEC football fan when you go to a UGA football game. <laughs> Malachi and I are like, what are all the songs and the dances? And the, like, I don't understand all the movements. And there's this whole tradition that we just stepped into. But like, one thing I know, Jesus is better than the Georgia Bulldogs. He's better. His victory is going to last way longer. And so what we do with our lives now looks a little crazy, sometimes feels a little different and crazy than the world. But in the end, we're still talking about William Tyndale, and we're still reading the work of the English Bible that Humphrey Monmouth funded. I'm guessing that God has blessed you with much. You don't have to feel guilty for that. But what you can do is use it as an offering by putting it back in his hands and coming alongside the Christian leaders, missionaries, preachers, pastors in your life and say, how can I support you? How can I help your efforts be successful? How can I like, put fuel on your fire so that you can go further? We'd love to talk more. I want to hear from Pastor Cole. Bring the word. Ephesians, he's, what he's going to say in Ephesians 4, when he's going to teach, is that sometimes it's the job of the pastors and the missionaries to equip you to go to your calling. Not to clap and cheer while the people on the stage do their calling. But the pastor's role is to equip you to go live out your purpose. Live out your ministry. God's raised up people to equip you to say, you have a ministry. You have a purpose. 
Your life is going to point to this one who's truly worthy. Pastor Cole, come on, bring us the word. And I'm so thankful to have John here this morning. And what he just did was give us a real world picture of what is one of my life verses in this passage. And it's one that is so easy to skip over, but when you hear a story like that, and you can read hundreds of these in Christian history, you get the meaning of Ephesians 4.11. Christ gave gifts to his church, whether those are spiritual gifts or people gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, for, not for them to do all the work, the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body. You know, in the letter to Ephesians, they used to write books differently than we typically write books now. Now we want the big plot reveal at the very end. If you watch a movie or a show or you read a book that's just so enthralling, you're waiting till the very last part of it to get the big reveal. But they wrote books differently in the first century. Their high point was in the middle. They built all the way up to it, And then they came all the way down from it. And so this week, actually, we're in the middle of Ephesians, but we get the high point. And the high point of Ephesians is this verse, Ephesians 4, 1. If, or therefore, everything before this is true, you have been blessed by God, you have been raised from the dead by God, you have been united with other believers by God, you have a passion and a a will to do what he wants you to do now instead of what you used to do, you have been gathered together with the saints. If all that is true, then you need to do something about it. And what Paul says is, therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That's the high point. You have a calling in the kingdom of God. If you're one of God's children, if you're one of the people in God's church, you have a calling on your life. And you may be a Tyndall, or you may be a Monmouth. You may be Martin Luther, and I pray God raises up another Martin Luther in our church. Or you may be a Gutenberg. You may be the person that delivers what somebody's doing. You may be funding it. You may be going. You may be sending. If you've been here the last few weeks, you can feel that this really, what John was talking about this morning, is a culmination of something that's rising up in our church. And it's a heartbeat and a passion to reach people outside of our church. Right? We want to be about mission. We want to be about seeing people come to know and worship and treasure God in their hearts, whether they're in Carlton Landing or in Eufaula or to the very ends of the earth. And I just love the way that this blended together this morning, not just as a picture of what Ephesians 4 says, all the members of the body working together in this service, but all the members of the body working together for the goal, maturity of the body of Christ the unity of faith, and the bonds of peace. In fact, one of the passages that's been on my heart the last few weeks is Psalm 67. If you were here last week, we talked about the impulse for missions is not for mission's sake, it's for worship. Missions exist because worship doesn't, is the way the the book uh, Let the Nations Be Glad begins by John Piper. But that comes from Psalm 67, and here's where I want our hearts to be this morning as we celebrate communion together. Psalm 67 does the exact transition that this passage does. If you have been saved 
and blessed and put on a mission, it's not for you. It's for other people. You were not saved for you. You were not given things for you. You are not living the life you're living right now for you. You don't have the relationships that you have for you. You don't have the gifts that you have for you. You have been given them to turn outward to other people. Listen to the way that Psalm 67 goes. He, the author takes the oldest blessing and prayer of the Bible. It's called the Levitical Priestly Blessing from the book of Numbers. And it says, let God be gracious to us and bless us. And may God make his face to shine upon us. And the rest of the blessing goes on to say, and turn his face towards us and give us peace. But something's happened in the heart of the psalmist to where he can't help but say, and then so what? May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us so that your way may be known on the earth. And you're saving power among all the generations. Do you see that transition? Not just may God bless me so I can have peace. May God bless me so that all the peoples of the earth may know. And he says, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For the Lord judges with equity. And he guides the people on the earth. And then he can't help himself. He says, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you because the earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, will bless us so that all the ends of the earth will fear him. God has blessed us so that his ways may be known on the earth. You've been saved. You've been given a calling. You've been equipped. You've been gifted to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's what leadership is. That's what calling really is. Building up the body, body in unity, building up the body in maturity so that all the nations may know that he is God and that he deserves our worship and our praise. Now, how can you start on this today? At the end of this passage, there's one of the more striking phrases in Ephesians. And if you've ever been in church, you've probably heard this, or if you've just been in a culture that's informed by the church, you've heard this phrase, speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. If you want to begin to be on mission today, here's where you start. Speak the truth in love. Right? It's so easy to separate truth and love. Almost like you got to have a little bit of love and you got to have a little bit of truth. Right? Because if you have all love with no truth, you end up like the people who audition for American Idol that we all get to laugh at at the beginning of these auditions where it's like, oh, somebody in your life doesn't love you enough to tell you the truth that you can't sing. <laughs> right? That's, that's all love, but zero truth. And it makes for great TV, but you do not want to be that person. Right? I would love to go to these people's families and say, how did you let them do this? How, how did you let them do this? But if you're all truth and no love, you're like Simon Cowell, who is going to roast that person for being on American Idol. But the way the Bible presents it is not 50% love, 50% truth. You got to make sure that you pepper in a little bit of sympathy and compassion when you say, no offense, but, which means you're about to give offense, or I love you, but. No, the way of Scripture is a little bit different than that. This phrase, speaking the truth in love, there's no speaking. This is a hard word to translate. There's no speaking. It's literally just the word that means truth as a verb. It just means truthing, just being the truth, 
living the truth, truthing in love. That's what we're called to do. If you want to build up the body of Christ, if you want to maintain the unity of peace, if you want to live on mission for God, start here. Truthing in love. The core of who you are, not just what you say, your life demonstrates the truth of what God has done. Your life demonstrates that your greatest joy is God, not something else. Your life demonstrates the wonder that you were sinful and you've been forgiven. Truthing means owning up to the fact that God did something for us we could never have done for ourselves. Living the truth means we model God and his ways and that we've been part of a family again, that we get to take part in what he's doing. That's what it means to live the truth. If you only speak the truth, you will never truly truth in love. You've got to model with your life, with your calling, with your relationships, the truth of what God has done in love for the people around you. So this morning, we're going to take communion together. And one of the most beautiful pictures of unity and maturity in the New Testament is in 1 Corinthians, where Paul says, you know, we don't just do this because it's a convenient reminder. We all come to one table. We eat of one loaf. We drink from one cup. Now, we've modified that a little bit post-COVID, but we all, in essence, are fed by the same body of Christ. And so when you come this morning, the way we do communion here is you're going to stand up as Marcy comes back up to lead us in worship, and you're going to come forward and take the elements right here. And that's a picture of us coming to the throne of God, laying down our burdens, laying down our gifts, laying down what we bring, and taking the only sustenance we need, which is him. You know, Paul says at the end of Philippians, my God will supply every need of yours in Christ. And if you're going to live out your calling, you're going to need it. You're going to need what only God can provide. And so as we come forward this morning, and you take these elements back to your seats, we are saying to God, only you can really provide for me. Only you can really take my life and turn it around and put it on mission. So I'm going to pray for us. Come, hold the elements, and I'll come back up after we sing, and we'll take these together. Father, we praise you this morning that your design for our lives is so rich and so wise and so powerful that you have given us skills and attributes and spiritual gifts and relationships and vision and passion and businesses that are all able to be used for your glory. Fathers, we speak the truth as we live the truth together in love. Would you reveal this morning your plan and your calling for people in this room? Father, would you raise up people just like the ones we've heard about this morning? people who are going, people who are sending, people who are praying, people who are turning their lives over for the work that you want to accomplish through them. Father, I pray that our church and all the people that we are attached to that come here, that visit here, that their home is here, Lord, that we would be a region of people who are mobilized, passionate, and called take our hearts now, fill them with your love, turn them towards your face. Father, would you nourish us with the
the body and blood of your son. In his name we pray.